All right, if you have your Bibles, please let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We find ourselves here. We're going to try to finish this chapter today. We're going to work with verses uh, 31 through 42. Okay, so uh, I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll start talking about it. Father God, it is good to be here in the assembly of the saints. Oh, how we long to be here and worship you together, to treasure you together in, in the person of the Lord Jesus who has lived perfectly on our behalf, has died our death, and he has gloriously taken up his life again and came back to life. And today He is alive, and He will come back to judge the world. Father, I pray for me. I, I pray that You help me make a big deal of it, because it is. I pray that You would make me Your mouthpiece. I pray that the Word of God would be proclaimed and would find fertile soil, hearts that are soft and, and, hearts that are soft and ready to welcome your holy word and, and bear fruit, bear fruits of repentance and holiness. Father, we depend solely on you, for you are the one who, who are the source of everything that is good and true and holy. So I pray, come. Holy Spirit, come and transform us as we contemplate the beauty of Jesus' holiness. And I pray all of that in His holy name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to recap chapter 10 a little bit. Uh, in this chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus has given His Good Shepherd discourse where He basically indicts the leaders of Israel, the Jewish leadership of Israel. He compares them in broad daylight. He looks at them in the eye and He likens them to the false shepherds of Israel, whom God has promised He will come to judge and rescue His sheep from their hands. That passage is found in, in, Isaiah, in, in Ezekiel 34. And Jesus Christ, in broad daylight, in front of everybody, very publicly, likens the Jewish national leadership to those false shepherds. In contrast to that, Jesus puts himself as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. He's not like the hired hand that when danger appears, they leave. They leave the sheep to figure it out by themselves. These false shepherds, they are in it, not because they love the people of God, but because they exploit them. Because they use them just to further their position, or money, or power, or, or glory of man, or whatever they are after. They use the sheep, they use the people of God to achieve all of those things. But they're not in it because they love God or, or, or His people. And Jesus makes that public. As He's talking to them, He says, I am the Good Shepherd. Not you. Not you guys. I am the Good Shepherd. And I give my life for the sheep. I lead the sheep into eternal life. 
They hear my voice. I call them by name. So there's a clear contrast. Around verses 20 through 24, they ask him a question because he's talking in, in a figure of speech, in, in kind of an allegory. And they say, we're tired of it. Okay, Don't keep us in suspense. We don't like figures of speech. We know what you're up to. What are you saying? Say it plainly. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ who is to come? And verses 20 through 24... We're not going to spend a whole lot of time, but I'm just going to, on them, but I'm just going to recap them. Those verses, they let us know that when they ask this question, Jesus is the Feast of Dedication. He is walking in the temple. He is in the colonnade of Solomon, which is in the temple. It's further in. It's not like the outskirts, right? So Jesus is walking uh, around the temple, um, around in the temple, and they come. And they surround him. And they ask him this question. Are you, say it plainly, are you the Messiah? Jesus' answer is brilliant. Verse 24 through through 30, we're going to start our uh, our exposition. He answers them. Basically what he says is, I am the good shepherd. I am the Messiah, okay? I have said that. In other words... All, all of the, uh, the allegory, all of the figure of speech that I, I've been talking about, the Good Shepherd, that's what it's all about. This is what I've been saying. I am the Messiah. But not only that, I am God. Not only that, I'm way beyond your expectations. I have not only said that, but I have shown you that. Look at my works. And he crowns his statement right after right after uh, he crowns his answer with the statement i and the father are one because he's been saying you know i am the one who saves the sheep if you come to me i will not lose you the father has given you to me and i lead my sheep into eternal life and i secure them in eternal life because the father has given them in my hands and to be in the Sovereign hand of the Father equals to be in my hand and vice versa. To be in my hands is the same as being in the sovereign hand of the Father. Then he crowns it with verse 31. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, that didn't go very well. Their interpretation of Jesus' words is, He is saying He is God. Now, people can say in different, in different senses, I am one with the Father, but not in this sense. And they, their reaction, look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Now, if you, if you rewind a few chapters in this Gospel, you will see that in chapter 5, Verse 18, the same guys, the same group of people, the national leaders, the Pharisees, these guys, they look at Jesus, and Jesus saying basically the same claims. They look at Jesus, and, and the text says that they were trying to figure out a way to kill him. Now, the text in chapter 5 doesn't say they picked up stones, but in chapter 8, when Jesus says... <clears throat> Before Abraham was, I am. When he uses the personal name of God and he applies it to himself, I am, 
the personal name of God that God gave to Moses. Tell them, I am sent you. When he uses the personal name of God and applies it to himself, the Pharisees decided, that's it, we've had it. And they picked up stones to kill him. That's what verse 59 of of chapter 8 says. So this is why John here is saying the Jews picked up stones again. So we see that the murderous thoughts have started long ago. It hasn't started right now. This is something they have been working on for quite a while now. They've had it with this carpenter. They've had it with this itinerant preacher who doesn't even have a place to sleep, doesn't have a house, comes everywhere, and he, he, he disrupts all of our celebrations. It didn't start now. Now, they're in the temple, and the text says that they surround Jesus. Now, I don't think they came in, they came to Jesus to have a simple chat with him. I mean, they're way in the temple. And the text doesn't say that they went outside to pick up stones. The text doesn't say that, so they just picked up stones. Now, the temple was very well kept. It is my assumption that large stones, the type that they would use to stone people, they're just not readily available. The ground is very well kept. It's not a dirty road inside the temple. It, somehow they had the stones already there. And the other reason why I think they didn't come to, to, to just have a, a nice chat and a theological debate with Jesus is that the text says that they surrounded Jesus. Now, call me crazy, but if a bunch of men, they make a circle around you and they don't let you out, at least where I grew up, that's not generally good news. Right? They make, they make a circle, you're inside, it's going to go bad. They're not doing that because they want to pray for you. Okay? They certainly want to lay hands on you, on Jesus. Definitely you wanted to lay hands on him. It wasn't for godly purposes. And that's where this discussion takes place. Now, why would they have such opposition to him? They asked him, are you, are you the Messiah? And Jesus' answer is way beyond their expectations. Because they have needs, okay? Israel is being oppressed by the Romans. The Romans are a pain. They tax Israel to death. They want to get rid of those guys. And the Messiah is supposed to come and crush Rome or whoever wants to mess with Israel. That's basically what the Messiah is. So when Jesus, come, when Jesus comes to them and he says, I am the good shepherd, he starts applying uh, God names to him. When he says, I secure people, God's sheep, in eternal life, to be in the Father's hand, to be in my hand equals being in the Father's hand. These guys, they don't like it. This is, I mean, to say that the Messiah is God, I and the Father are one, that's exactly how they understood it. To say that the Messiah has a divine nature, they hadn't thought about that. Not in their wildest dream. So Jesus' answer is way beyond their expectations and concept of the Messiah. They had developed a theology. But 
Jesus' answer is not beyond what the Scriptures had already said. Now, I want to read a few passages. We're going to look at them. These passages, I, want to, I just want to tell you before I start reading them, they are not nowadays only, okay, but in their day, these passages were widely understood and interpreted to be messianic passages, to be promises from God about the Messiah, the Christ who was to come, about the anointed one. Micah 5.2, for example, says this, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. They love this part. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, if you have a different translation, it might say from everlasting. Now, from of old or from ancient days, okay, ancient days is not the 80s, okay? I know it feels like it nowadays, but it's not, it's way before that. God Himself is called, in Daniel 7, He is called twice the ancient of days. It means it infers eternity. Eternal existence. And now the prophet Micah has just attributed that, that attribute, he has just given eternality to the Messiah. To the one who was to come from Bethlehem. Uh, the book of Psalms chapter 2 verse 12 says, kiss the son. Now in, in Jewish culture, in Hebrew culture, Hebrew scripture, Kiss is a sign and an act of worship. In Jewish theology, in biblical theology, only God is due worship, correct? So here we have the psalmist ordering, commending us to kiss the Son or worship the Son. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We are told to worship the Son or the Messiah. God is very jealous of the worship of His people. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. Now that's the Messiah that is going to be born in, in a miraculous way. It's a sign. It's a miracle that God is going to give the people this sign that the Messiah is going to come from a virgin. And what is the Messiah going to be known as? What is he going to be called? God with us. Emmanuel, that's what it means. Now, this is God saying that through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9:6, a clear promise of a Messiah to come, identifies this Messiah as God. I mean, it actually calls him Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father or Father of Eternity. It, this Messiah precedes eternity. If we can even grasp that, He is eternal again, which is an attribute of God. Malachi 3 verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? 
And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. The Messiah is coming, and he's coming to do a work of judgment. And many won't stand when he comes. That's the Messiah. God himself is coming. But even having scriptures like these, they still refused to at least entertain the possibility that Jesus was not crazy, that Jesus was not a charlatan, that Jesus was not a heretic. They saw the works, they heard the words, but they refused to even entertain an honest dialogue. Now, we're not above creating theologies that are not biblical. This is why we are absolutely desperate and dependent on this book, on the Word of God. God wanted us to know a lot of things, and He wrote it down so that there's no way for us to forget it, Okay, he wrote it down. We have to be diligent to read it, to depend on it, to eat it all the time. It is the way of sanctification. It is through the Word of God. It's how we live the Christian life. It's how we get saved. We are utterly dependent on the Word of God. You take the Word of God from the people of God and we are done. I don't think I can overemphasize this. I don't think one can overemphasize this. But they understood that Jesus had just said, I am God. Now, there's different ways that this statement, I and the Father are one, there's different ways that this statement can be interpreted. And, and, and maybe this statement could mean uh, in, in different contexts, it could mean something different than I am God. But, for example, when you read a novel, you don't, op- you don't open that novel on page 84 and see the sentence, she, uh, she, went, uh, she did what her mother-in-law told her to do, and she refused to do what her father paid her to do. You don't just read that that sentence, you don't read that paragraph and, and you're like, okay, let me see what that means. No, there's 82 pages that came before that that give you a context and based on what's been happening, you find out who she is, who the mother-in-law is, which implies a husband, and who her father is, and what it is that she was told to do by the mother-in-law, and what it is that the father paid her to do, and now you know what's happening. You cannot come to the book of John and, and see this statement in John 10.30 and say, well, that can mean a lot of things. Well, the Father wants people saved, I want people saved, and I preach the gospel, the Father has given us the gospel, we are one in that sense. Well, you can certainly say that, but that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not what his primary audience understood. Now, they're saying he, he is a blasphemer, right? Jesus could... Ve- the, the punishment for, for blasphemy is death. So, that's what they're doing. Jesus could very well... That's not what he meant. He could very well say, Oh, 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 oh hold on, fellas. 
Hold on, let's put a lid on the crazy. That's not what I said. I didn't mean I am God. Hold, let's, let's talk this out, okay? That's not what Jesus did. He didn't back down. They understood, the primary audience understood Jesus to be saying, I am God. Jesus did not deny it. To come to this verse and say that Jesus is not claiming to be God, or to say that the book of John or the Bible never claims that Jesus is God, I mean, it's at best ignorance of the biblical evidence. We're going to go through it in a little bit. But um, that's at best ignorance of what the Bible says. A different interpretation of John 10.30, I and the Father are one, doesn't even fit the context of the book. The evidences and claims and statements saying that Jesus is God is all over this book. It starts in verse uh, 1, 1. That's how he starts the book. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. You scroll down the page, you see in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, who is it that became flesh and, and, and lived among men? Clearly talking about Jesus. One claim of divinity, of, of deity, of um, divine nature. In John 5.19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Can we agree that regular guys cannot say, I do whatever the Father does? All that the Father God can do, I can do as well. I mean, I don't care how awesome they are. They can't do it. If you're not Jesus, you can't say that. Unless you're the Holy Spirit. But uh, Regular guys cannot say that. I do whatever the Father does. That's not true. That's not what Jesus is saying. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The personal name of God applied to himself. John 10, 18, this very chapter we're in. I have authority to lay my life down. And I have authority to take it up again. Now, is there a mere man, just a mere human being, who can say, you know, I, I'm tired of being dead. I'll, I'll live again. No one has power over death besides God. Jesus in John 10, 18, he says, I'm going to give my life and I'm going to take it up again. Just because I can. I'm doing it. Now, in, in Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah has this wonderful vision. Somehow he gets transported. He, he finds himself in the throne room of God. He sees God himself sitting on the throne, his robe, the, 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 the angels worshiping God. Isaiah nearly dies. God is holy. I'm a sinner. I'm toasted, right? So he has this awesome vision. And Isaiah recounts that in, in his book. Now, John the Apostle, John the Apostle, he looks at that and he comments on this. In John 12:41, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. 
I want you to see this. John sees, he considers the glory of God that Isaiah saw. He considers that the glory of Jesus. The one that Isaiah saw on the throne presiding over the affairs of humanity, ruling creation, being worshipped by the angels. John just said that was Jesus. It's all over the book. John 20, 28, 20, 28, after the resurrection, Thomas did not believe that Jesus was risen from the dead and, and Jesus proves to him that he was risen from the dead and Thomas just, his knees buckled, he falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. He worships Jesus immediately and Jesus accepted his worship. Not only he accepted the worship but he called it faith. He said, you know, you had to see me for you to have faith. But, you know, blessed are those who believe or have faith, even without seeing. Now, if Jesus is not God for him to accept worship, that's blasphemous. God would strike him right there. That's blasphemous. I mean, in, in, in the book of Revelation, John has this amazing vision in the future and he sees some things. And an angel shows up and same thing. John almost dies and he falls on, on his face and, and he's worshiping the angel. The angel nearly has a panic attack. Get up! I'm just a servant! You know what happened to the last angel that accepted worship? I mean, this angel is frightened that John is worshiping him. Get up! I'm a fellow servant! Jesus doesn't get frightened. He doesn't correct Thomas. He doesn't say, don't worship me, I'm just another guy. The claims of Jesus' divinity is all over this book. To say the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God is at best, like I said, uh, uh, just a refusal or an ignorance of the biblical evidence, which is all over. Now, this is incredible. I want you to see this scene. We're going to touch on verses uh, 32 through, uh, through 34. But these people, they're ready to stone Jesus. 31 says they, they grab the stones and, and they want to stone him to death. And they want to execute him in the temple. They basically started the process of, of execution. And Jesus' answer, Jesus' reaction to their hatred and murderous thoughts it's not to call fire from heaven or a legion of angels and, and smoke them. But Jesus' comeback is, let me help them see their error. This is absolutely incredible. He appeals to their experience when he says, look at my works. And he appeals to scripture when he's going to touch on, uh, on Psalm 82. Let's, let's read verses 32 through 34. The Jews picked up stones, again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, quote, 
I said you are gods. Well, let's take a break right here. Let's go to verse 32. He's appealing to their experience. I have shown you many good works from the Father. They have seen the good works from the Father that Jesus has done. He did them in broad daylight. He didn't do them in a corner. Okay? He didn't do he wasn't just claiming things. He was backing up his words with his works. And they were good. Now, this, this word good, I, I don't think there is an English word that, that conveys all that this word in, in, in Greek conveys. It's the same word that describes the shepherd as good. And this word talks about his excellent character, his moral excellency, and how great this, these works are, works of power in greatness of character. And those works result in health and well-being. It brings about good. Those words are good exactly because they come from the Father who is the only source of everything who is good and, 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 and holy and beautiful. They have seen these words and Jesus appeals to them. Look at my words. I did so many things. Are you going to stone me for any of those? These words, they should have provoked or elicited a, a, a response similar to that of Nicodemus, the great rabbi, the great teacher of Israel, when in John 3, he comes in the middle of the night and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that God is with you because no one can do the signs that you do if God is not with him. The works of Jesus should elicit that response. But it's not how these leaders react. They want to kill him. These are works that should not have provoked hostility and anger, much less murderous thoughts. It is uh, amazing to see how the love of God or how their response to the love of God, their reaction in verse 33 is, <laughs> we are going to stone you. They don't back down either. And we're going to do it for blasphemy. You're a heretic. We're going to kill you. It's mind-boggling to see that their reaction to the love of God to the patience of God, to the mercy of God towards them, to God giving them the words of eternal life, their response is hatred. The hardening of their hearts. These are the people that, that, that Jesus, in, in chapter 5, He says, you know, you guys search the Scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. And it is these very same Scriptures that testify, witness about me. But you refuse to come. You are not willing to come. So Jesus appeals to their to their uh, experience of seeing, witnessing things that nobody has done. It doesn't work. Their reaction is hardening of heart. Then, in verses 34 through 36, he appeals to the Scripture. 
Jesus had a very high view of Scripture. These people had a very high view of Scripture. When Jesus says Scripture cannot be broken, He's going to say in verse 35, Scripture cannot be broken, cannot be wrong. They don't disagree. That is their view. They believe the Scriptures. They hold it in very high regard. These men, they memorize the law. They memorize the Torah. They can say, recite it cold, many of them. It was just a practice. So Jesus naturally goes to the law that they hold in such high regard. And he quotes uh, Psalm 82. So we read John and then we go to Psalm 82. Okay. So in, in John, let's, let's go now to, to Jesus' answer in verse 34, which is, Is it not written in the law, in your law, quote, I said you are gods? If he, God, called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? Now, let's go, let's go to, to uh, Psalm 82, because this phrase, you are God's, Jesus is quoting Psalm 82, and I want you, I want you to, um, to see it, okay? So let's go. I'll wait for you to find it. I'm already there. Tell me when you're there. It's not a race. Sort of. Okay. Let's go. My biblically literate congregation. Psalm 82. This is how it starts. You see that Jesus is quoting verse 6, but we're going to do the whole thing. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. You shall inherit the nations. Arise, O God, judge the earth. You are gods. Now, let's look at what Jesus is doing. It's really not as crazy as it might, as it might seem. It's really not. It's pretty simple. He's using an argument that was, I mean, we still do it nowadays, but, um, you know, if so-and-so does this for a guy who, does, who he doesn't even know, how much more would so-and-so do it for his own child? So we do, you know, the lesser from the lesser to the greater. We do it a lot still nowadays, but in their day, it was very, very popular, especially among the rabbis, among the teachers, part of their culture, how they argue, they reason. It's very, uh, very common, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus' uh, line of reasoning here is pretty much saying, okay, in, in Psalm 82, we're talking about the gods, the, 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 the judges, and 
God calls them gods. Why? Because they are exercising the office of judgment, which is a way in which we bear God's image. We share in God's attributes, so we have a reason, we have morals, we have conscience. We have the word of God that they are supposed to, to judge and uh, um, rule the nation of Israel to rule over Israeli society, to help the poor, to help <clears throat> to give justice to the, to the innocent, to condemn the wicked, to help the orphan, to give justice to the poor. They were supposed to do that. There was the word of God, and God had bestowed upon them, the judges, through the word of God, the authority to do that. And God called them, calls them, you are all gods. So basically, the people that receive the word of God, and especially the judges, they are bearing God's image, and in a, in a more strict sense, in a, in a more <clears throat> narrow sense, they can be called a, a uh, they can be called gods, little g gods, just because of that, it was part of the culture, it's um, <clears throat> the Psalms, a book, uh, poetic books, a book of songs, it, not blasphemy, not heresy, so Jesus comes up with Okay, if the people, you know, regular people, regular judges, if they can be called gods by God, look at the stuff I did. I mean, I did some pretty wild stuff. Okay, there was this guy in chapter 5 that I healed on a Sabbath. You guys made a huge deal about it. He had never walked for 38 years. I walked up to him and I said, get up, take your bed and leave. And he got up and walked with his bed. All you guys could think about was, it's Saturday. It's not lawful for you to pick up your bed. And then, chapter 6, I fed thousands of people with just a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread. Multiplied everything. And in the end, there was bread and fish that was left over. I did that. Okay? I walked on water. You know, just in chapter 9, I just healed a blind man from birth. I didn't restore his vision. He had never had any vision. I restored his vision. A miracle that had never been seen in the history of mankind. So I have said I am greater than these people. I have said I am the Messiah. I have said I am God. And I have demonstrated my divine nature and my messiahship by my works. Can't you at least entertain the fact that if I'm greater than these guys, and they are even called gods, can, can't I be called God in a greater sense? Because the things I did and do, only God the Father can do. And I'm doing them. I'm not only saying, but I'm demonstrating what I'm saying by what I'm doing. My words and my works. He showed the works first. They didn't believe it. He goes back to his word again. And that's what he's arguing. God called these people gods, little g. I did much greater stuff. Can't I be called God? You know, because they say I'm the son of God, you're going to stone me. You say I'm blaspheming. They wouldn't even entertain the possibility of having a, a honest dialogue, an honest dialogue with Jesus. They did not want to talk about it. They weren't ready to accept Jesus' uh, reasoning, Jesus' words, even though they had heard the words and, and seen the works. <clears throat> so, 
This is basically what, what he's arguing and he's saying, blasphemy? Really? Is that, is that your final answer? You're going to dismiss me as a blasphemer, as a, as a heretic? Now, as we look upon the, the next three verses, uh, 37 through 39, I want you to see a couple of things. If you see and feel, if you haven't already, and, and they are Jesus' heart for the sinner. I mean, remember that these people are ready to kill him? They surrounded him in the temple. They have stones in their hands. And Jesus' comeback is to call them to faith. He's going to say, if you don't believe my, my words, believe my works that you have seen. And man, how I long, how I desire, how I beg God that we, sovereign grace, we Christians, that we would be like Jesus in this regard. We would be more like Jesus. As disciple makers, we have so much to learn from Jesus. You know, to not revile, to not repay evil for evil, to be, you know, tough and tender like Jesus is being, to be, you know, meek and courageous at the same time in proclaiming the word and proclaiming his message. Oh man, how we need that. How we need that. We are in much need of His grace to be like this. And, and the other one is that these people are at the climax of, of rebellion against God, against Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He calls them to faith. That tells us that it's not too late. There is still time for Him, for them. There's still time for you. It doesn't matter where you have been spiritually, where you are. There is still time. You know the guy that you have been witnessing and praying for for like 31 years? There's time for him. I mean, I don't know a lot of people. I know there are, but I don't know a lot of people that, that want to kill Jesus and are nasty in their unbelief. They're out there. I, I, at this present moment, I don't know that guy. These people are nasty towards Jesus and they're ready to kill him with their hands. To stone him to death. Jesus is calling them to faith. Let, let's read um, 37 through 39. And then we'll talk about it a little bit more. I'm almost wrapping up. 37 through 39. Jesus says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And again they, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Now let's dwell on, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, he has said in 32, I have shown you many works from my Father, and he calls the works great or good. Moral excellency, excellent uh, character, good nature, essence. Um, they are works for the fa- from the Father. It is not a crazy assumption, it's not a crazy interpretation to think if the works are from the Father, if they belong to the Father, if the Father is working them, and Jesus is performing those works, Jesus has to be sent from the Father which is what he says in verse 35. In fact, another interpretation to say that Jesus is doing works on his own, not sent from the Father, just doesn't fit 
what we're saying. It cripples, it cripples uh, the text. Jesus is sent from the Father and He appeals to them again. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. But then, look at His mercy. He calls them to faith. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works. Look at the patience and love of Jesus. Look how long-suffering He is. Jesus calls them to faith and He allows baby steps. Like, listen guys, I know you don't believe me. Okay, I know it's a big, big step. You guys didn't have a grid for what I'm telling you. You guys expected Messiah to be a political, military leader, a general or, or a big politician that would have a lot of rhetoric and, and power, would convince the nations and, and gather an army and, and free the nation. I know that's all you thought I was going to do. You didn't expect a carpenter that would be preaching. Not a rich guy in saying that his kingdom was from another world. And at the same time saying he is God. You didn't expect that. I get it. Look at the stuff I've been doing. If you don't believe me, believe my works. Now, my question is, what does it even matter if someone believes that Jesus is a miracle worker, but they don't believe that He is the Son of God and the only way to salvation? If one believes that Jesus is a miracle worker and he doesn't believe the divine nature of Jesus and how he died for sins and was resurrected again, and upon believing in, believing in him, he will give us his perfect life and God will recognize us as innocent and perfectly righteous, just like Jesus. If you don't believe that, it, they're lost. What does it matter if they say, yeah, Jesus did great works. Why is Jesus doing this, calling them to believe the miracles? Believing in the miracles of Jesus doesn't save people. But Jesus has the answer. Are you shocked? Jesus has the answer. Look at the second part of, of verse 38. Believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Believing in the works of Jesus is a good beginning. It's a good starting point. To believe in the works of Jesus, according to Jesus, can very well become a gateway for your faith to mature, to come to a more mature understanding of who He is and that the Father is in Him and He is in the Father. And come to saving knowledge or love, faith, in Jesus Christ. Now, that's got to be encouraging for us. In disciple making and in your personal walk with Jesus, to see the stuff that he did, you've got to be the Son of God. Surely this man is the Son of God. His miracles uphold the glory of God. And that's what he's saying. If you don't believe me, I get it. Take a baby step. Let's just, let's just take it. Let's break it down. Okay. Forget my words for a second. Let's not analyze my words. Let's look at my works. Who else can do this? 
believe the works so that you can believe my words. So Jesus has the answer. That was Jesus' terms of peace. That's how he's pretty much finishing it. That was Jesus' call to faith to them. And verse 39, they sought to arrest him. He somehow escaped from their hands. I'm not going to, going to speculate how he did it. I know that he did it. I know that the Father had not scheduled his death to be that day, and the Father had not scheduled his death to be by stoning. Uh, that is good for me. Other texts will say sometimes Jesus would kind of disappear in front, disappear in front of them. You know, they like, where is he? And he was gone. Uh, it, John doesn't say it here. Uh, but the sovereignty of God is enough for me. Uh, John doesn't go there. I'm not going to go there either. Then John takes us to the, he transports us to the other side of the Jordan River. Which seems kind of odd, kind of abrupt. Because Jesus is talking and then all of a sudden John goes, and then he, he went to the other side of the river, to the other side of the Jordan, where John had been baptizing. So that, that's verses uh, 40 through 42. I'm going to read it, and then again, we'll talk about it. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now, in the mind of John the Apostle, how, how does this work? Jesus is talking, and all of a sudden he brings John the Baptist into the story. He transports Jesus, ends, up, ends his discourse kind of abruptly. And it seems like, at least to me, you tell me if that's not how it strikes you, but it seems like there's a, a disconnect. Like, what are you doing, John? Uh, Especially in John, his stuff doesn't end like that. He doesn't transition like that. Um, you look at it and you see that he, he's doing this for a reason. And, it, and I think I get it. It's not disconnected. He points out to the ministry of John the Baptist. And his ministry was unpretentious. I mean, not a spectacular, humble ministry... Okay, he didn't even have a podcast. The man had never been even close to performing a miracle. Never. John the Baptist had a message and he yelled it. That's all he said. That's all he did. God entrusted him with a message and he, he ran with it. He didn't say much more than that. He didn't do much more than that. You know, it didn't go well for him. But he went with it. Now, in Jerusalem, he was rejected. The message of John was rejected. But across the Jordan, when he was baptizing, I mean, if people come to be baptized by you, safe to say that they're accepting your message. Where his message was embraced, which is the message that Jesus has just preached, I am the Son of God, or John 1.34, when John the Baptist says, He is surely this man is the Son of God. That's the message of John. You know, what did he say about Jesus? That they're saying, this is all true. That here's the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. 
Jesus hadn't yet taken away the sin of the world, but they are already proclaiming it's true. John the Baptist's bulk, the bulk of his message was, surely this is the Son of God. Where his message was embraced, across the Jordan, there saving faith flourished, sprung, came about. Where John's words were rejected, Jesus almost got killed. It's like a, like a, a key to faith. If there's a, a, an initial embracing, faith, faith will flourish. John says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, I want you to listen to this because if you are in Jesus, you have been given a message. Now, I know that you haven't performed any miracles lately. I know that. In spite of what you did, how much you stretched your last paycheck, you're not a miracle worker. That was just the effects of Black Friday. You didn't do a miracle with it, even though it seems like it. But you have a message. The perfect life of Jesus. His death on behalf of sinners. His resurrection. He came back from the dead and He is alive today. And He's coming to judge the world one day. You have been given this message and since we're talking about great works and good works, there is no greater work in your life than to proclaim and display that message. And it does involve words. You're not proclaiming it if you're not saying words, okay? You can display many things through, through, through uh, charity and, and good behavior, and that's awesome. But there's a content that we have to speak, or sign language, however it is. But there's a content. They need to hear who Jesus is, what He did, and that He is alive and coming back. Now, why is this a great work? John 6.29 says that this is the work of God. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. This message that God has entrusted to us is the only thing that enables people to do the work of God, which is... Believe in Him, Jesus, whom God has sent. Have you thought that there's nothing greater than the message God has given you? Nothing greater than the gospel in your life? The truth of the gospel. Everything in your life is to spring from that. Is to come forth from the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he did. We start changing that, things get out of whack. Hold it in high regards. Get out of the way like John did, like John the Baptist did. Remember his mindset? It is important that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. I want to disappear. I, want, I don't want to be in the way of the message. I'm just a messenger. Forget about me. Don't look at me. See what I said. It's a message. And we have been given that. 
And that's, that's my charge to you today. That we would have this mindset that Jesus is in the, in the spotlight. Not us. You have been freed from being God. I know we don't say that we are God, but we act like that when we say that the universe revolves around us, when we act like that, when someone cuts you off, when, when they dare to mess up your plans for your life, we don't say, oh, I'm God, you should worship me and obey me, but we just act like it. We just throw a fit when things don't go our way, the way we had predestined. But you have been freed from that. So what if people are going to think this or that because you believe this ancient message. You're free from it. You're free from, from the fear of man. This is a message that has been entrusted to you and nothing is more important than that. Go out and as you go, teach them to obey everything that Christ has taught you. How can you do that? Because he's with you every day until the end of the age. Now, my sermon is really over. I'm not going to keep babbling because I, I, this is all I got. And my prayer is that it would bear fruit, is that you would be humble servants and messengers, that I would be a humble servant and messenger like John the Baptist and get out of the way of the message. My prayer is that sovereign gracers and Christians would be like Jesus in disciple-making, in evangelism, in proclaiming the good news, the great news of the gospel, that would be, we would be meek and courageous and tough and tender and trust in the sovereignty and provision of God, that if it's not the time for us to die, we won't. Because He has appointed everything. That we would be like that, by His grace. That this gospel, these wonder, this wonderful news would take root in your heart and completely transform you and free you as you go and proclaim Him with your works and words. And if they don't believe the words, take them to the works first. It might be a gateway for saving faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, how thankful I am for your goodness, your patience. Who can, who can charge you with not being long-suffering to your enemies? Who can charge you to, of not being patient? Or not having mercy on them and give them the words of eternal life? Lord Jesus, I pray that these words would find a place in our hearts and bear fruit and that we would, by your grace, be bold proclaimers of this message that you have entrusted to us and that we would live it and love it and cherish and glorify you as we enjoy you day after day after day. And I pray all of this in, in our Redeemer's holy name. Amen. Amen.